Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, web listeners. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about another podcast you might be interested in. If you love inspiring stories about strong women, you should definitely check out The Double Shift. The Double Shift is a brand new storytelling podcast about a new generation of working mothers. There are no tips and tricks, and it's not about parenting or kids. Instead, it's actually about the three-dimensional experiences of the mothers themselves. Radical, right? Creator and host Catherine Goldstein is reporting on all kinds of stories from across the country, from politicians to musicians to sex workers to executives. What all these women have in common is that they're not willing to accept the status quo for working moms in America. Check out The Double Shift wherever you get your podcasts. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, coworkers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome back to Web of Women the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. So, for example, in episode one, I interviewed my friend Sosie Bacon. Then each of the women I interviewed picked someone from their lives to talk to. So Sosie decided to interview her mom, Kira Sedgwick. If you missed that conversation, check out episode five. Now, that next group of women is continuing the chain. On this episode, Kira's talking with someone else from her life. I'm Kira Sedgwick, and Stacy Bradford is the executive director of Kevin's charity organization called SixDegrees.org. So I'm interviewing her today as just a beautiful woman who I happen to know and admire, but that is uh, part of our connection. So full disclosure on that. So I'm Kira Sedgwick. I am a mother, wife, actor, director, sister, daughter, not necessarily in that order. I am speaking from Los Angeles, a drizzly Los Angeles, California. I'm getting used to this, Kira. <laughs> it's actually Stacy Houston now oh. because I was recently married. Oh, yay. yeah. So we got <laughs> we got married on New Year's Eve. So, uh, yeah, I am as you already said, the executive director for Six Degrees. I am a daughter, new wife. I lead this wonderful nonprofit. I consult in energy and sustainability as well. 
And I am actually in a drizzly Washington, D.C. right now overlooking the wharf, which is a fantastic area here in Southwest. But California and D.C. have had similar weather patterns, which is very strange recently. Very strange. And where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in Pittsburgh, actually, and that's I'm a huge Steelers fan. People are always like, how are you a Steelers fan? Oh, because there's this little bit of time, three years of my life where I was born in Pittsburgh and it stays with you no matter where you go. But my family moved us to California. Both of my parents were nurses, just kind of for a new start. And so I grew up in Southern California in a very small town called Redlands, which is at the base of Big Bear Mountain, kind of going out towards Palm Springs, which I really loved and kind of grew up my whole life there until about six years ago when I moved to Washington. Wow. Where did you go once you left home? Okay. So this is kind of funny. So I... Went to every school my entire life from preschool through college within like a mile radius. But I wanted to have a true college experience. So University of Redlands was my choice in university. I decided to live on campus because I really wanted to just immerse myself in it. So I moved the whole five minutes (laughs) down the road and into campus dorm right at 18 and just kind of... I'm very close to my family, but I was very independent. Um, I would have moved out sooner. I was just kind of always wanting to to grow up and, and be an adult and start my life. I started working at 15. So I just always wanted to like be successful and work really hard. And I mean, it stems from how I grew up. There was a, my parents' marriage was, it left you wanting. They got divorced when I was about eight And so I really felt like I was always trying to create a better version of myself. I grew up in a town, lots of friends that had, you know, two-parent homes or they seemed to really have it all together. And so I found myself just always trying to be like those people that I admired around me. And I think in a lot of ways that's benefited me in a strange way in my career to kind of push on. But as I got older, I, I, you know, I reflect back. And it's also one of the things that is so sad about growing up and not really learning to love who you are and your experiences until you're kind of in hindsight 2020. But wow, that's so interesting. Um, we have a lot of similarities. My parents were divorced when I was really young. My mom remarried when, when I was six, but I started working professionally when I was 16. It's so interesting to hear you say that about work because like, I'm really bumping up against that now. I mean, I've worked consistently and I have a really good career, but like what I think, when I think about like the negatives of starting to work so early, I think to myself, well, by the time I was 16, I was only as good as my last job. I was only worthwhile if I was working and if I was self-supporting and also if I was successful, you know? So that kind of gets in the, can get in the way of loving yourself for exactly who you are today, like no matter what, like unconditionally. Oh, absolutely. You said it kind of perfectly. I feel like with my career, I was always kind of self-promoting 
So I got stuck. (laughs) I just call it stuck in sales after college because I was really good at it. And the problem with being good at sales is that you can make money. And when you come from a family life where there was some struggle and difficulty, you put a lot of value on money, right? And success. And there are a lot of benefits to that, right? But you start kind of chasing that thing. And from 15 on, I wanted to have a car like my friends had. And I wanted to have my own apartment. And I wanted to have, you know, designer bags or or whatever it is that you feel like is going to make you fit in and be more relevant and be more respected or however, you know, fill in the blank what we do with ourselves, right? And this is all our own rhetoric in our head more so than anything else. But I got to a point only recently where it's I realized that I had not taken a break. It really wasn't until my honeymoon where I was able to take, you know, a month off from the wedding to the honeymoon where I unplugged, I turned off all my emails, I told my family, please just don't call me. And I really just need this time. And it was the first time in my life that I had taken a breath, really, that I can remember. And that's exhausting. I think I realized how exhausted I truly was from chasing so much for so long. Even now, I'm I'm happy in my career, and I'm I'm very focused. But it's just imprinted inside me to do lots of things at once. It's definitely hard to say no. If I find that I'm passionate about something and an opportunity opens, I'm like running for it because I still have this thing that's saying, do more. The work is never done. I think it's a common thing for some women. Right. Right. I just want to touch on what you said about like all your friends had a car, all your friends had a this, had a that. Like was the neighborhood that you grew up in very, was it a wealthy neighborhood? Did you go to school with like really wealthy people? Yeah. You know, Redlands is a really interesting place. It's very multicultural. It's an orange grove town. So you have a lot of like agriculture workers and migrant workers. And then you have generations of family that have been in the town for decades. And it's kind of a Victorian town. It's really beautiful. It's they, they call it the jewel of the Inland Empire. But it's also a place where there are disparities that have and the have-nots. My parents worked really hard to make sure that I stayed in the same school district, which was deemed one of the best schools in the entire San Bernardino County, which is the largest county in the country. But, you know, I had a lot of friends that did have more. And that was difficult because my parents fell on rough times. Lucky for me, my friends and and their parents treated me like one of their own. There's There were so many healthy marriages and healthy relationships to kind of glean on to. It definitely helped me. Whereas I see a lot of people that had similar upbringings that I did, but didn't have anything really sound and structural to look at that unfortunately may have affected them differently. So I definitely know that like I had privilege in that type of way. Mm-hmm. What was your path to where you are today? I touched on it a little bit that I had this ability when I was growing up wanting to camouflage myself. I didn't really talk about the struggle in my family. My parents divorced. There was a lot of like addiction around me, those types of things, and didn't really ever voice those things. So instead, I just wanted to kind of mirror back the people I admired around me. 
So I, I did that and I did that really well. And then I went into college thinking I wanted to be in psychology. I think it was a natural thing. I, I loved how the mind worked. And then I hated my first professor in psychology. <laughs> so I actually studied religion because history and cultures really fascinated me. And I grew up in a family that I think we went to church here and there, um, but I was like a seeker. So I was constantly kind of looking for something that probably that could help me and comfort me during this. Religion really, I gravitated towards that. But in college, you know, my mom thought, oh, you're going to be a minister. And I was like, oh, no, I'm studying all different types of religions. <laughs> and she was like, oh, my gosh, no, what's going to happen, you know? And it really just made me more, I feel like, able to enter the next stage in my life well-rounded and like more empathetic and compassionate for different people. Because through my study of religion, you see that there's just like so many similarities. There's these core values, no matter what you're studying, that really hold true. And it's kind of uh, people then distort that and make it something it's not. And so for me, after college, Obviously, that wasn't employable. <laughs> so uh, I got my first job in sales, like selling payroll. And I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, they're giving, giving me a car and like a cell phone plan. And like, this is amazing. But really, it just taught me that people will yell at you and hang up the phone on you. And you just have to like strive through that. What I found really fascinating about it all is that when I made my first sale, I felt really strong and I saw that paycheck and I realized, well, I can really control this if I work hard and if I'm likable, I can really create as much success for myself as I want, you know? So I did that for a few years and like I kind of mentioned before, I self-promoted because it was became really natural for my age group to not stay in a company for more than like a year and a half or two years. I started working in a women's health company selling contraception. And that was really eye-opening because I really got to see the medical health system up close and see how, like, heavily flawed it is. You have, like, Medicare paying people that are treated abysmally. And then, you know, you go into an office that is beautiful and clean and vibrant, and it's like, oh, we don't take any Medicare here. And, and that type of startling kind of separation really left me sad a lot of times, right? I could see how people were just treated different. And I did that for a few years, and I found myself bored again. And then I worked kind of company after company doing different things until I actually started volunteering because I thought I need something else in my life outside of just corporate America. I, I felt a little bit bankrupt spiritually, if that makes sense. Oh, my God. It totally so, makes sense. <laughs> of course. So then I, um, I started volunteering for different organizations when I moved to D.C. And with every event that I helped put together or throw, it really started inspiring me more and, and kind of filling that tank that we need, I think, inside ourselves. Like you can only pour out what you have <laughs> inside, right? So I, I volunteered to start, I co-found an organization called TEDx Tysons, which basically they're independently organized TED Talks. And me and a couple other friends thought, 
you know, we just need like a forum and a place to like bring thought leadership and bring people together. And like living in Washington, D.C., people don't want to have conversations sometimes because either everybody agrees or you definitely don't want to have a conversation with someone you don't agree with. So we started having these events where we would find people that had really interesting ideas and we'd bring them to the stage and then we'd produce these talks and put them out. And the reward was just the feedback we were getting from the community. People are really hungry to be inspired, to share information, to be in community. And I mean, we have people on the stage that do not have popular ideas all the time. But what these have taught me is that people do and they are okay with hearing a different perspective as long as it's presented in a way that they're ready to hear that information. So I have a real passion for kind of creating opportunities for people that have differing opinions to share. And that's the most difficult obstacle of our day are getting the others together you know? Oh man, I'm like nodding. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're speaking my language, but go on. I hear you. Yeah, I, I feel mean, the same way. I, so many nonprofits are trying to like have this angle of like, okay, well, how do we bring the two different sides to the table? And, you know, how do we have these conversations? And it's like anybody you talk to, they can sit there and say to their blue in the face, like, I'm open minded. But I, had a, I have a really good friend that told me recently, Stacey, do you consider yourself open-minded? I was like, of course. He's like, when was the last time you changed your mind about something that really mattered? Wow. And I was like, uh, I was 19, you know? And that that's how long. And it's for me, you know, that's 15 years ago. Like, am I really that open-minded? When was the last time that you really sat across the table from someone that had a completely different perspective than you, but you came a little closer to understanding where they were coming from instead of having this visceral reaction of like, I do not understand your ignorance or your X, Y, Z, you know? And I think that we're in a time period where it is super important to share our stories and to be creative with how we do that, right? It's not always about people knowing that they're entering experiences where they're going to be confronted with somebody that has a differing opinion. But we need to create spaces and events. And I think volunteering is a great way for people to come to the table and work with one another and build relationships and rapport with people that don't see the world the way that they see the world. There's so many great causes that we can kind of stand around and starting there, leaving politics out of it, getting back to the humanity of of the cause, and then building those relationships organically with people so that we can start having conversations again. So many of the things that I'm involved in creatively right now, at least on the storytelling side of, you know, as a producer and a creator of content, Everything I'm trying to do right now has that as its core. The idea that we've never been more polarized, we totally don't get each other, and we've shut the door on even trying. And we listen to our own news, and we talk to our own friends, and now you don't even, in the news, and this has been going on since the 90s, but now you don't have to show both sides, so you don't even have to learn both sides of any issue. You can just learn one side. There is a lot of, you know, false narratives going on in the world and how do we how do we say you know look no matter what i know everything everything in the country is geared towards separating us but i want to be in 
relationship with my fellow man, even if I don't necessarily agree with them? And how can I foster that conversation? You know, the two things that I'm out in the marketplace trying to sell right now have that at its core. So, I mean, I remember when when Trump was was voted into office, I thought, you know, and there was so much passion on both sides about it. I, I What I wanted to do was get a bus and take a bunch of people, lefty liberals like me, and like go to the middle of Trump country and sit down across from someone with a cup of coffee in their kitchen and like, let's talk about the things that we both believe are true, that we both care about. I'm a mom, you know, I'm a list of all those things I mentioned. And like, how can we not be in a war? Because basically that's what it feels like we're in right now. So um, what I loved about what you said was that let's not even talk about what makes us different. Let's talk about the thing that we both give a shit about. Like we both actually care about the fact that, you know, they're doing away with art in school or they're or, 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 you know. Exactly. My husband and I both have family that are from like coal country, Pennsylvania. We're in a special circumstance where if you want to keep your family, you have to come to the table and understand where they're coming from. And we both lived in Washington, D.C. during this last election, where uh, I remember being at the party that night at the National Building Museum, and everyone is just like celebratory and super excited because we're in a bubble. And our bubble says this is going to happen this one way. And when it didn't happen that way, (laughs) I remember thinking, how could we be so off? Like, how could we be so wrong, right? And then it was kind of like shame on me because I felt like I was surrounded only by people that thought and voted like me. You know, in the recent years, and even starting before that, I have relationships that go back further, but I've been really intentional about fostering my relationship with my conservative friends more. And I mean, I have very conservative friends. I have friends that I know single-handedly helped with, you know, millennial outreach for the Trump campaign. And some of my liberal friends are very angry that I still call them close. But to me, I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice to otherizing anybody. Like, it's such a hypocritical stance, right? Like, binary. how are you ever going to share something that creates more empathy and makes people come closer to the middle, right? Like, there's not ever going to be social change like we really want if we are not having conversations that are really needed. And conversations only happen when you have trust and you have relationships built. For me, it's just how can we create what I I like to call it collisions when worlds collide and paradigms shift. We need more of these like positive collisions so that people can start kind of building bridges. And as human beings, we're, we're result driven. And a lot of times we don't want to put in the little time because we don't think that enough is happening quick enough, right? But just because we don't see the effects right away doesn't mean we're not doing monumental impact, right? And you don't know the one conversation you're going to have and what that trajectory happens. And that probably goes back to like my faith. Yes, that is so true. I really, I'm always such a big believer of like, 
polish over here shines over there. And like, you know, when you drop a pebble in the lake and the ripples and the ripples, I mean, I know it. I know like the more that I become aware of the other, of how I do that, whether it's about race or it's about conservatives or people that don't believe the same thing I do, as much as I can open my mind about that and go, you know what, there is another way to see it, then it is a better world because of that, because I behave differently in the world because of it. And I really, I don't want to live in the bubble anymore. I mean, I think that if there's a good thing that has happened with what has happened in terms of us swinging so far to the right politically, at least in the executive branch, I feel like people like me who were, you know, leaning back, kicking up our heels, totally sanguine and thinking we got this, you know, really like are having to fight all the time for to make a difference and also to to fight against that idea of like what every corporation in my mind and media outlet is benefiting from, which is to keep us separate. Hi, Shira. Hey, Jenny. How's it going? It's good. How about you? I'm good. I just got off a Skype call with our intern, Emma, in North Carolina. How convenient. It was so convenient. She was having problems with the CRM, and I was able to chat with her over Skype and walk her through it. It was fantastic. Aren't we lucky? Because this first season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. Skype is software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and voice calls, whether it's one-on-one or in groups. And people also use Skype to send instant messages and share files and send gifts. So thank you to Skype for sponsoring this season. I should also note that while Skype facilitates conversations like the one on this episode, that doesn't mean that Skype approves of or agrees with any of the opinions being shared. Those belong solely to the people who are speaking them. Okay, let's get back to the show. Bye. Before we get back to Kira and Stacy's conversation, I want to prepare listeners for a drop in audio quality due to some technical issues. I apologize, but I think the content's still very much worth listening to. Here's Kira and Stacy. Um, let's see. Have you ever felt radical? If so, when? Oh my gosh. You know, I hate that word, right? <laughs> you know, it's like you hear radical, you immediately go like radicalized and, you know, you're off the hinges. I felt pissed. I felt really angry, angry enough to you know, want to show up and activate my voice and uh, mm. protest and whatever means I had. I definitely have. I think that for me, becoming politically aware really started happening in 2008 mm. yeah. with Obama's first election. Yes. I had never really followed politics before then mm. other than like your Saturday Night Live skits. And I remember listening to Obama in the beginning and just feeling so inspired and thinking his message was so beautiful and pure And then slowly, a lot of people actually, not a ton, but a lot of people that I respected and and cared about had these very ugly moments around 
Obama. And I started really for the first time seeing the subtleties in racism and um, the subtleties in social justice reform that's needed and these types of things that made me feel like my purpose in life was to like help with helping people become more aware of, I hate to say how racist they are, because <laughs> people think, well, if I didn't say the N word, like, then I'm not a racist. Like I have a black friend, my niece is black, um, like at whatever they say, but in reality, racism is something that's like can be really it's interwoven totally. into the fabric of our nation. I actually read. I have this book called um, "White Fragility: Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism." Have you heard about this book? <laughs> no, but I, I I've heard the term. It's more recently. Fucking yeah. amazing! It's it blow <laughs> it has blown my mind. In fact. We're all benefiting from the white supremacy of this country. So it's good to hear you say that. Really good to hear you say that. Um, Thank you. When was the first time you ever felt aware? This is such a hard question. I had a hard time with this question when I was asked this question. When was the first time you felt aware of gender? And how has gender affected your path and your career? The first time I became aware of gender was probably my first job out of college. I, it was actually my senior year in college. I was working as a, a waitress and very quickly I got bumped up to bartender at a restaurant called Krabby Bob's. I probably shouldn't have said that, but it's fine. I don't oh my God. What a fucking <laughs> title. Grabby Bob's. Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> they must have changed their name by now. I mean, or they're out of business. They need to be. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing so hard. Crabby Bob. Like, oh, I thought it was Grabby. Wouldn't that have been hilarious? Oh, it's so funny. Um, so, yes, Crabby Bob's. And one of my um, managers said, you know, we're going to go to Intel on the happy hours in the area to see, like, you know, who we're competing with and, like, what they're offering because they were hurting for business. And I said, okay, that's great. I'll go, I'll go with. He asked me to go with him. And we went to a couple of different happy hours in the stretch of streets that we were on. And then got back and everything was fine. And then the next day he came out in front of everybody and he's like, Stacey, I need to see you in my office. Oh, it was very strange. I'm like, I'm definitely in trouble. And everyone was like, oh, what did you do? So I go in his office and he's like, can you shut the door? I'm like, okay. And I shut the door and he's like, sorry about that. I just kind of had to act like that. So like no one was like expecting anything and like thinking anything weird. I'm like, okay, I forget exactly how he worded it, but he's like, I had a really great time yesterday. And I know you recently went through a breakup and girls like you aren't single for long. He said, um, cause they always flatter you in it, you know, and I'd love to, you know, take you out sometime. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, Oh, silly me. I thought that I was, working with you yesterday when I was working with you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Men just don't have to deal with that the same way. And it became, that was just like the first of many times when um, it was downright sexual harassment, right? In the workplace. And I mean, in a sales environment, you're constantly around trainings around this stuff. So it's not like people don't know what they're doing. 
But the subtleties of smacking me on the butt or like downright just making like overt, well, you look beautiful today. It's like, would you say that to another man? That mom that looks beautiful today. And then if we're offended, it's like, you should be gracious. I just said you look beautiful as if we need to, you know, be okay with, with that. Um, it is infuriating. Totally. (laughs) You know, luckily I haven't had to deal with that for a really long time, but it's just, I know it's something that women face all the time. It's a constant. And as much as the B2 movement has like helped confront a lot of these types of daily things where every day I feel like someone is being highlighted in media, you know, a new story, a new picture, a new text message and whatnot. I'd be interested in how many people are, are actually stopping the behavior or if they still feel like they're invincible in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, for the people who are like on factory jobs or, you know, making French fries at McDonald's, like how much are they actually going to say, you know, you can't do that. You can't say that. I mean, I don't think that women are going to feel, you know, if you really freaking need the job, you're going to be much more careful, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, there's a power dynamic there. And I don't think any time that I'd ever been sexually harassed at work, I actually said anything about Mm. it. And so when people say, why wouldn't, you know, she speak up? It's like, uh, how many times do you not speak up? Because you just think it's not worth the, the paperwork, the, totally. the, 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 the meetings to like drudge it up and people saying like making you, you're like the victim, but making you somehow like the culprit, like Gary's a nice guy and right. he's having fun and he has a family and <sighs> why would you do that to his family? It always gets turned around in like this really weird way. Not saying that like, you know, I, I by no means want to demonize men. And I think that we also have to be careful because in this day and age, I, I'm sure there are a fair share of things. And even throughout history, there's been a, uh, you know, a story or two that is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be more sensitive to like what needs to happen. I think there needs to be like systemic changes, right? Like there, we, we need to do something with our processes in the workplace and making sure that we're protecting against it. Yeah. You know, at, at the very least. Yes. Um, but I also think that a big part of it is women, more women in more powerful jobs, more women at the head. I think it makes a difference. A hundred percent. Yeah. God, I could talk to you all day. Honestly, the only thing I feel like we didn't get to is what and who do you consider to be your community? This is a big question for me. So I feel like that's one of the things that makes me different than a lot of my friends. I feel like my community has really grown throughout time. I, I collect people Uh and I try to be really intentional about continuing to, to grow that relationship and touch in. And what I find is that if you Mm -hmm. have really intentional time and you're really focused when you do spend time with that person, that relationship carries on for years, right? Mm -hmm. You may not talk to each other every day. You may talk to each other once a year, Mm -hmm. but that like intentional time and to check in I, I think really is what relationship thrive on. And because I changed a lot throughout my life, my community here in DC, I would say a lot of it is like my church community and the people that I met when I moved here. But 
overall, my, my community is, they're like family to me. They're, they're people that I met in Los Angeles when I, you know, moved away from Redlands for the first time and didn't know a soul and just took me in and we built these relationships and we still talk every day and they're, and they're Mm, left leaning as they come. But then I have (laughs) friends, like I mentioned here in DC that are conservative, right? Um, and then I have friends that I think uh, are all over the nation through TEDx and uh, people that build these conferences all over the world. But for me, my, my community is really like my, my family. Um, mm. More and more, I find that I'm finally in a place in my life where my work and my professional and personal life really make a lot of sense, right? That mm. the people I get to work with are also people that like, I want to spend most of my time with and I want to know more about them, like their lives and their families and what makes them passionate and purpose driven, you know? Mm. Uh, and it's, I feel extremely grateful for that because I think a lot of people don't find that sometimes till much later mm. and sometimes not at all. For me, community is fluid, but I think that it's those people that we help each other grow we help yes. each other stretch yeah. and we call each other on our crap. Yeah, I totally agree. I think maybe you should just talk a little bit about six degrees since, and then I think we'll be good. So six degrees obviously was founded by your hubby, but you know, Kevin Bacon. And when I, I think that in order to talk about six degrees, I have to tell you about the story of how I got to six degrees, Yeah, which, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm a strong believer in like things happening for a reason. Mm. When I moved to Washington, DC, it was because I was following love. Mm. Um, I met someone and they lived here and I thought I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person. I'm going to say yes and fly across the country and start my life here. And then it was not that way. And we ended up calling off an engagement and I was at one of the lowest points of my life, but I loved my job. And that's when I was doing uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. But a girlfriend of mine called me and said, Hey, listen, one of my friends works for a celebrity. She's very elusive, (laughs) but she talked a little bit about six degrees and here I am Googling and I'm like, is it Kevin Bacon's charity? And mm. she's like, I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was like, well, listen, like the SoCal LA girl, the transplant doesn't move to Washington DC and then end up working for Kevin Bacon. That's a little far fetched. And she said, listen, just, just have the conversation. Well, the morning that I was going to meet with our past executive director, I got a call from my boss that said, we need you to move back to LA or we're going to have to lay you off. And we need that decision by three. Oh my God. Yeah. And I was like, well, I just met my now husband a couple months before. And I felt like this could be something. And I didn't want to stay for a guy because God knows I moved across the country for one and that didn't work out, you know? Mm. And I had all these feelings, but I felt something that said, just trust. And this coffee now just got more important. No. <laughs> and I, I went and I had a conversation with him and it went really well, but it wasn't for maybe another month till I had spoken with Kevin and I had since I got laid off and I was just like, wow, 
I need, I need to trust the universe right now. I need to trust God. Like I need it. Mm-hmm. I need to really just think in, but thoughts are in your head. Like basically, what are you going to do? Old me from how I grew up. You need to work hard. You need to make money. Mm-hmm. You can't depend on anybody but yourself. But for some reason, there was like a stillness inside that said, this is your job. Oh my God. Even though I hadn't, I hadn't gone in it yet. I remember asking God, listen, I want this person to be happy again. But just not before me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Awesome. I love that. That is so great. And sure enough, the day of my birthday, Kevin gives me the job. I meet him in Alexandria. He pops in my priest, which was surreal at the time. So, you know, we're at lunch after doing several charity drop-ins that we call for Six Degrees, where we go and we highlight grassroots nonprofits that are doing great work in the community, which is like, it's like a dream come true. I'm like, I get to give back by helping these nonprofits that are doing extraordinary work be more elevated and raise more money and help with their, with their donor outreach. Like, that's fantastic. Like, how rewarding. And then I'm across the table from Kevin at lunch on my birthday, and he's like, what do you think we can do to, to grow the organization? I'm like, Kevin Bacon is asking me, <laughs> like, you know, which is one of those things that it goes back to that, like, you never think you're enough, right? Mm. It all someone else to say, God, oh, you're enough. Like, you've been working your whole life for, for this opportunity and this moment to mm. really create change. And that night at my birthday, I was surrounded by my community, you know, 30 of my closest friends, all ages. And I have this guy who I'm now married to next to me. And I'm (laughs) like, I am so happy. And the next morning I went to church because I wanted to, to just show some gratitude before my next day of working with Kevin. And sure enough, I looked over to the right and my ex fiance was there with his new girlfriend. And one of my friends grabbed my leg and she's like, I'm going to kill him. And I laugh and I say, no, I was like, God is so good. I said I needed to be happy first. And literally the night before, I just said, I am so happy. And I was at complete peace and I have been ever since. God, I just, I feel so moved and nourished and inspired by this conversation. I just, uh, you're amazing. And I cannot thank you enough for doing this with me. Thank you, Kara. You're the best. Um, This really meant a lot to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. Next episode will be the third link in the second interview chain. So I interviewed my friend, Jing Cao. Then she interviewed her friend, Danielle Guillen. Now it's Danielle's turn. I'm so excited to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brewer. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week.